kind of a, um, an odd day. I was saying earlier, this is the, uh, the first time that I've uh, had the opportunity to share that um, Lee's not here. Kind of odd. But um, it feels weird, you know? It feels like there's something missing, and I think maybe that's a good thing. Um, but she's on a good mission. Um, those of you that know uh, uh, Diana Chevalier, she's up and, uh, with Dave and Jan and, um, and Doug and Candy uh, visiting her. Um, just keep her in your prayers as you, as you think about that. Um, anyway, when Andy asked me to do this, well, in all honesty, we'll back up a little bit. Um, originally, <clears throat> there were to be four guest speakers, and Andy had asked me would I speak on one of the, the, the four specific weeks of, of Advent, and he forgot. That he, that he had asked me, so we were in an elders meeting, and he was like, well, you know, I've got so-and-so doing this, and so-and-so, doing, and, it, and he named off these four people, I'm thinking, I'm off the hook. I don't, you know, now I don't, you know, I can kind of get my mind going in another direction, and I can kind of let this, and I can let it go, and he, I think he saw the, the, the wheels turning in my head, and went, oh, my Lord, I asked you to do one, didn't I? And he goes, I got a great idea. And I'm thinking, no. <laughs> he goes, how about you talk on why Advent? And I'm thinking, yeah, no. I'll, I'll just take a pass. We'll go. Because um, how many of you uh, grew up in a, a liturgical tradition where, see, you guys... Advent makes sense. I mean, it's just, it's what you do. It's part of what, and you just, you kind of go, you go through these things because we come to this time of the year and it's like you just, whether you actually get it or you don't get it or you explain it, maybe sometimes in your head you just think, okay, you know that the pastor has, four, has five messages that he's got, he can just, re, he can just rework them and he's going to be good for the liturgical season because he can hit the four weeks of Advent and then do a Christmas service and he's good to go. So he only has to worry about the other, what's that, 47 weeks? Um, and then, you know, if he takes a couple weeks vacation, he's got it down to, you know, closer to 45, and, he, and he's good. But so as I thought about this, I thought this is, is really kind of a, a hard topic because the, the fact is there is no scriptural precedent for, for doing specifically Advent. There's no, no thing that you can pull up in Scripture and say, okay, here's, here's where it is, and this is, what we need, and this is what we need to do, and this is where and, and why we need to do this. But as I began to look through, um, through Scripture, um, I began to see when I started in the Old Testament, and I'm, we're, we're not going to read the whole thing, um, but uh, there's, there's so many things that I see as we start at Genesis 1, 1, it says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created something that he intended to be perfect. He intended for it to be that way and in this form for all eternity. And then through that, as he, as he spoke into the, into the darkness and he created light and all of these things were formless and void and he brought shape to it, he began to look at these things and decide that it needed to be tended. And so from the dust he formed man and he breathed his breath into that. I mean, think about that for a second. Here is something that's totally lifeless. It's got, it's, it's got nothing but a form, and he goes, 
and it was alive. And it was in his image. And it was perfect. And it was intended to be eternally exactly that way. And as he looked at that man and he saw all the things that he went through through, that, through the beginning of Genesis, he saw that, it was, it was, that, it, that he was alone. And so he and his wisdom formed woman and put them together and set them in this place that we know as Eden. And it was, it was perfect. I mean, think about that because I think there's something innate in all of us that like perfection, but we never just quite get there. In fact, I heard it said one time that, you know, God created us in his image, and ever since then, we've tried to return the favor and make him in ours. Um, and let that sink in a little bit. Um, because what happens here in, in, this, in, in, as, in, in this perfection, here comes, the, here comes our enemy, the serpent. He comes in, and he begins with the little and he comes up to comes to Eve, and we know this story. And, and she goes and says, you know, don't look at all this stuff. You've got all this great stuff here. You could have any of it. And she's like, well, you know, not not really any of it, because you know, there's this one tree that God said, don't eat from it. The um, the the knowledge of of good and evil. And he said, you know, uh, and that is where the slide began. Because his response has been our response ever since. Because he looks at her and he says, did God really say? And the slide began. I think we, we look at that and, you know, and it's, as I, I kind of pick up my notes here, is that, you know, that back and forth through then we've had this this. this occurrence of a, like a point counterpoint. And I, I, thinking about this and, and all through scripture, how this is, how things have changed because from, from there, God had no choice but to put them outside of where he had intended for them to be in perfection. And, and pronounce the curse that would be on them. You know, I think it's interesting because, you know, in, uh, on, on the woman, he said, you know, in, in childbirth that your pains would be, would be magnified and, and there'd be a stress that's going to come between you and your children from here on out. And I don't know any mother that won't willingly say that there are stresses that she has from time to time with her children because they, they always do exactly what we want them to do, Right. I think dads, and I can speak from that perspective, I can't speak from a mom's perspective, but from dad, we become oblivious to most of it. You know, it's like they're not killing anybody, they're out of jail, we're good, until our wives remind us that, but that's, you know, but I look at this, this back and forth of what was in, and, and, and it's this, this continual slide until we get to, um, to, to Noah. And it's like God finally gets to the point where he said, okay, I've, I've, I've had enough. This has slidden so far. We've got, I've got to do something about this. And so he picks somebody who's 600 years old. I mean, think about that for a second. Noah is 600 years old, and God comes to him and says, look, we, we've got to change things because what's going on is not working. And so here's what we're going to do. I want you to build a boat. Now, at this point, nobody really knew what a boat was, much less an ark, because there was no reason. It never rained. I mean, can you imagine that? At this point in all of history, it has not rained. Everything that grew, grew because it was watered from, from below, but there was no need for rain. 
That doesn't, my, my mind can't completely wrap itself around that. But yet, that's what God chose, chose to do. And so he goes through all that, and we'll you know, speed through this, because otherwise this could get really long where I want to go. But he does that. He sends the, he sends the rain, and um, Scripture says that Noah did everything that God asked him to do in the preparation of the ark. I mean, think about that for a second, because how many times do, do we do everything that we've been asked to do exactly as we've been asked to do it? You know, especially if there's not somebody step watching over our shoulders, we're, we're apt to try and figure out a better way, a faster way, a more efficient way, but that was not what Scripture says. Scripture says that Noah did it exactly the way that God intended for him. And I want you to think about this for a second, how incredibly important it was that he did it exactly right, because that thing needed to float for the entire period that the earth was flooded and not only did it need to float it needed to float with all of the all of the animals that he had on it so that they would be preserved i mean can you imagine if he had decided well you know we can get this kind of wood cheaper than we can get that kind of wood or you know let's we're going to use the generic pitch because the pitch that is that that god's saying to use it's too expensive so we're going to go budget he did everything exactly the way that God wanted him to do, and thus mankind was preserved according to God's plan. But it wasn't enough for man that we stay there, that, God, that mankind continued to do all the things that he wanted to do, which brought us to um, Abram. Abraham. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting as I look at that without you know, going through all that. Again, here is Abraham uh, was 75 years old when God called him out. I mean, think, I just, as I'm saying that, how, how many in the, in the room right now are 75 or older? Seriously, I want to, I, I, okay, th- think about this for a second. God's, God's talking to, to Dan and he's saying, okay, I want you to leave everything you know right now and take your wife and you're going to go someplace because I'm going to make you into a great nation. Um, Dan's one of the few people I know in the room that would probably say, okay, I'm going. <laughs> um, I mean, I thought about that even as I said it, but, I think, but think about that, that here he's firmly established in, in his ways and in all the things that he wants to do and how he wants to do it, and he willingly goes. But the thing is that even in going, and you look at all, the thing that I love about Scripture, and let, let me say that the thing I love about Scripture is that when you really read it, if you don't take somebody else's word for it and you go in and, and read what the Word has to say, you find out that most of the people in Scripture um, are just as stupid as me. You know, they, do, they, they make the same mistakes that I make. They, they, they say one thing and they do another, or they, they think that God is trying to teach them, is trying to lead them to do this thing, and so I do it this way only to find out that he meant it that way. And that's really kind of the same thing that Abraham discovers, because here, you know, he gets to be 90 years old, and this promise that God has given him that he's going to be made into this great nation hasn't been fulfilled. So he and Sarah come up with this plan that, you know, you're 90, I'm 80. The chances of us having a baby, the chances of us wanting a baby at, at 90 and 80 are not real high. So God must have meant that, that we need to use Hagar, my, my servant, because, well, it just makes sense because she's young. She can bear a child. 
and it, it'll all be good, right? So we end up with Ishmael, which is man's plan. And Abraham just kind of goes along with it thinking, okay, well, this, this, this kind of works. It makes sense. <clears throat> he grows up, and he's so proud of this, this son. But at 100 years old, God comes to him again and says, yeah, that wasn't the plan. And Abraham was, well, but it's working. Couldn't we just kind of retool this and let's, let's just let things flow through Ishmael? And God's like, no, that's, that's, that's not the way it's got to work. It's that there's a promise that can only be fulfilled according to my purpose, according to my will, and according to my plan. So we end up with Isaac. You know, I think that that's, that, uh, is, that's interesting because as we look at that, um, we've got this conflict between God's plan and man's plan that goes on, and we, st- and we see it manifest even here today. And this is off my notes, but that just thinking about this, that we've, we've got the conflict between Isaac and Ishmael that's going on today. And it's been going on today, and it goes on in so many things, because if not for Ishmael, um, that's, you know, uh, the Muslim roots, Islam draws its roots from Ishmael, because they view, um, Islam views him as the son of the promise. But he's not. Anyway, so we, we, mo- we move on from there, and uh, we end up with, with Isaac. Um, and, you know, Isaac, you know, kind of is a bit of a scoundrel himself, too. You know, you go with all, all the stuff that goes on, and um, he, he goes through, and uh, uh, from there we, we come into, and I'm kind of skipping around here because I, I want us to see this, this flow here of how we end up with from Isaac to, to, to Jacob, and then I think about about Joseph, because Joseph, I can um, Joseph, I can kind of relate to a, a, a lot because I can put myself in his position. I think about he's 17 years old. He's the youngest of um, of a, well, next the youngest of 12 brothers, and he's been the favored child his entire life. You know, he's been, he's been that, that kid that, um, that dad dotes on and dad gives the best of. And, you know, can you imagine, a, well, most of us here can't imagine what it would be to be part of a, a family of 12 children. Um, but you look at the, the dysfunctionality of what's going on here because not only was he the, were, were there 12 children, but there were four different mothers. And they all lived together and how... <laughs> How they didn't kill each other makes no sense to me because I can see four women trying to share a house not being a good thing. And then you add into that the, um, that you've got these, these, these 12 um, sons and all of them knowing, including the one who is favored, that he's favored. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster right from the very beginning. And I just, you know, here he's, he's 17 years old, and he comes to his brothers, and he says, you guys are not going to believe this. I had the coolest dream. You know, we were, we were all out harvesting our wheat, and um, as, as we were bundling our sheaves together, um, all, of the, all of your sheaves kind of began to circle around, and they, bound, and they bowed down to me. Isn't that cool? It would have been bad enough if it ended there, but here he comes back and he has a second dream and he says to his dad, who's now part of this, 
you know, I thought that last dream was cool, but wait till you hear this one. There were these 12, there were all of these planets that were circling around, and then there were uh, were 14 planets, and and they were all kind of circling around, and then all of a sudden mine was in the center, and all of these other planets began to bow down. And his dad was like, yeah, I don't know what you've been drinking. But that's not going to happen. And I think it's, it's interesting when you, when you look at this because as the story begins to unfold, it's exactly what happened. It was exactly God's plan. It was, it, but it wasn't his timing. It wasn't where he wanted it to happen. It wasn't how he wanted it to happen. But there was a maturity that needed to come. But it only came when he finally was completely surrendered. I mean, because you think about this, how, how bad a day would it have been for you if you go to see your brothers taking a message from your dad and their solution on how to deal with you is to be, beat you up and throw you in a cistern. And then it's not, you know, it's like the initial plan is to kill you, but let's do one better, let's sell him. That's what they did. And so they, they sell him and to a bunch of, of Midianite traders, and he uh, goes off to, to Egypt, and he's bought by uh, Potiphar, the, uh, Pharaoh's uh, chief guard, and um, all the stuff. And all, we, we know the story, and we, we can see how, how it all unfolds. I just think it's, it's interesting, if you look at all these different parts, at how at each step, there, and with Joseph, there was another layer of maturity that had to come before he was ready to do what God had him there to do. I mean, think about that. Because, you know, at first he's released into, um, he has to work his way up in, uh, in Potiphar's household to where he's trusted. But then we know he ends up in jail because of Potiphar's wife. I think it's interesting there too because um, I've thought about this before and I've read I don't know, probably a half dozen different books from different people's perspective on this, that, you know, tr- truly if Potiphar had really thought that he had tried to seduce his wife, he would have had him killed. He wouldn't have had him thrown in jail. Think about that for a second. If he really believed that he had seduced his wife um, and that he'd done all the things that his wife had said that he had done, then the, the, the only thing he would have done would, would, be to have her, would be to have had him killed. And he'd have been justified. But think about that. He didn't do that. So that says to me that Potiphar probably knew a little bit of his wife's reputation prior to that. And so he couldn't do nothing because he needed to save face as Pharaoh's uh, bodyguard. I mean, so he had to do something. So he puts him in jail. So there's kind of the first thing. And then he ends up in jail for a period, this period of time and then interprets the dreams. And um, then ultimately he's called upon after sitting in, in jail a little bit longer to interpret another dream. And we know the story how God used that to save Israel. And I think that it's interesting as we look at this because um, through this that we, we know that in Israel, because of this famine, that there's, there's no food. So the only place to go is to Egypt. And somehow or another, um, in God's perfect timing, he moves all of the people that he wants to become his kingdom here into into Egypt and they become a great people you know through all, and without you know s- s- skipping through the story here and i think that this is that this is important as we as we build through this because um, they become so powerful that pharaoh becomes afraid of them i mean think about that for a second they become so 
that even though they've become slave labor to him, they, um, there's so many of them compared to his own people that he decides that I've got this great idea. There's so many of them and we need to stay in charge. So here's what we're going to do. Um, every male child that's born to uh, a, a Hebrew slave, kill him. Let the girls live. They're no threat. But the, male, the males we're going we're, we're, we're gonna to kill. And I think it's funny because the Hebrew midwives kind of caught on to it. And so um, they didn't obey. And so I, I, I find it humorous. Read it yourself at some point that their, their response when they get called out on it was, but, you know, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're, they're, too, they're too sturdy. They're too strong. And they've had their babies before we can get there. So, you know, and they're, they're hiding away from us. So um, Pharaoh buys it. I think that's pretty funny. I mean, how gullible. But anyway, so he, he says, okay, here's what we're going to do then. If they're so sturdy, what we're going to do is I want you to take these, the male babies and I want you to throw them into the Nile. Let them drown and let them be eaten by the crocodiles. That's brutal. I mean, think about that. That's absolutely brutal. But somehow or another, in one Hebrew woman's mind, she decides, well, you know what? I'm going to follow the spirit of the law but not the letter of the law. So she makes this basket, and she puts her baby in it and throws it in the Nile. <laughs> so she followed the law because Moses was in the basket, but he was preserved. Do with that what you like. I think that that's... That, that, um, so God has a... He continues to have a plan that he tries to work through himself. And here, um, because of this, you know, again, Moses comes to a place where he tries to figure out what God wants to do on his own. It says Scripture says he was about 40 years old. And he decides that um, he's going to go, and now's the, now's the time. Forty seems like a great age to go, do, to go be perfect in what God has called him to do. So he goes out into the, to he, to the uh, is, other Israelites. That He obviously knows that he's of, of Hebrew descent because he, it, Scripture says he goes among his people. And so he sees an Egyptian guard abusing uh, a slave, and so he kills the guard. And, you know, thinks that he's gotten away with this in secret. Of course, we find out the next day when he goes back out and he sees two slaves fighting with each other. Um, it's like, why are you doing this? And the, and the one who was apparently getting the better of it says, are you going to do the same to me as you did to the, the guard yesterday? So he feared and he, he takes off. And so his plan to set Israel free was not God's plan. It took 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, so as we, uh, and we all know what kind of happens there. Finally, God gets him to the place where he wants him, and so he begins to take him out, he, he, to bring him back, to bring the people out. And I think that it's kind of, as, as we continue to follow this thread, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to babble here, so hopefully you all follow my thought process, because I, I see it clearly, you know? Um, I can kind of picture the things together, and it kind of all makes sense, but I think some, I get a little nervous when I begin to see people going, okay, where's he going with this? Um, 
But he gets Israel back where he wants them. He's, got, he's, he's taken them through all these years of slavery. He's taken them through seeing what, what real deliverance looks like. And they've, they've, all, they've come back in. They've gone through all these battles. They've reestablished. And, they've, and they're, they're now back in Israel. They're where they were intended to be from all, from all time, but through, somehow or another, that was not enough. They began to look at it and, and say, you know, this is okay, God. This would, this is, but we would really be good if we had our own king. If we could just somehow be like all the other nations um, and, have, and, and had a king, then we would be, then we would be good. And God's response back to them is, but you have a king, it's me. And they're like, yeah, but we can't see you. You know, we, and so Samuel, um, at God's behalf, began to seek out a king according to what God would have him do. And that's what we end up with, with Saul. And I think it's, it's interesting that he, he anoints Saul and that on the day that he is ready to introduce him and to anoint him as king, you know, he announces to all of Israel, this is what we're going to do. This is what the king, this is what the, the king is going to look like. And God has, has let the lot fall on a specific person and he announces him. But he's nowhere to be seen. And so uh, they begin to pray, and they say, "Where?" And he's he's hiding with the baggage. I mean, I think it's funny too. I think that we're you know. And so he stands up, and he is a head taller than everybody. And I think that that's funny because as we look at it, Saul looks like he should be king. He's got all of these 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 striking features, and you know, he's he he. He looks and walks, well, except for hiding with the baggage um, once that, that's happened. But um, he looks like he should be king. And S- Samuel says, okay, this is the way kingship is going to work. I'm going to go before God, and I'm going to ask him, what is, it that you, what, what is it that you want us to do? I will pass that ma- message on to Saul, and then Saul will then instruct you. Pretty simple. I talk to God. I'll bring it to you. You do what God asks me to have you do. I think that's a, that's a no-lose proposition for Saul because all I got to do is, li- is listen to him, and if he missed it, it's his fault, not mine. I mean, that's where I would go with it. Um, but Saul doesn't do that. I mean, we, most, most of us should know the story about uh, by this time. And the kingdom's taken from him. And it's given to David. And then from all the things that happened with David, David, you know, Scripture says, a man after God's own heart. And from David, we see all the dysfunction there too, which there's plenty to go around there also. But it goes to to Solomon. And I think it's, it's interesting because Scripture says that Solomon was the, the, was the wisest of all of the kings. But um, interestingly enough, too, um, I was sharing this with Andy the other day. I'd never knew this before. Of all the kings in Israel, Solomon was the only one that had no prophetic voice in his court. 
do with that what you like. But I think that it's interesting because he was so wise. I wonder if maybe those that were of a prophetic gifting uh, felt like they wouldn't be welcome there because he wouldn't be, they weren't needed. He would already know. But he was so wise that Scripture says that at, at, the, at the point of the end of his kingdom, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That makes no sense to me. I mean, being married to one woman is hard enough. And um, because I'm always wrong, and I make sure that that's, I am always wrong. In fact, I was taught very early on, if, if I could learn to say from the very beginning, I'm sorry I was wrong. What'd you do? I don't know, but I know I was wrong. <laughs> That'll all get back to her, I know. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, think about that. It says that he had 700 wives and three. And it said because he was so divided in all of this that God came to him and said, look, it's not going to work. You've, you've lost your focus on me because you're concentrating on all of these things. And so I've got to, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to, even though I, and it's only because I promised your father that there would always be a son of David on the throne that I'm going to let you keep Judah, but all the other, uh, the other ten tribes except for um, the Levites are going to, going to go off in their, their own direction. It's going, to be, it's going to be ripped from your hands because you had a plan and in your own wisdom try and make this work. But it can't work that way. And we see through there this, this slide that continues to happen, and it happens exactly that way. Rehoboam becomes king, and the kingdom is, is ripped out of his hands. You know, he has an opportunity, but it, do, it doesn't work out exactly the way that he thought it did. And so we, we slowly come back until we finally get to all of the kingdom is exiled again, and we've got uh, Daniel and the things that happen there. And Daniel begins to prophesy and, and tell the people what's going to happen and how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. I think that that's, that's pretty cool when you think about that because some of the things that Daniel foresaw um, were both for um, in the near future and in a future yet to come. In fact, I heard it said one time that at, at some point, um, as, the, uh, as a body of believers, we're going to begin to see that the book of Daniel was really more prophetic than historical. I don't know, do with that what you like. Um, but this constant thing that happens that, you know, here, here is, is Daniel and he, and he, uh, he prophesies some things that we, we see happen. Um, you know, we begin to see, um, and this constant calling back too, that you know, this is what's going to happen and this is how it's going to happen. And so because of his prophecy, we see um, Ezra go forth and the reestablishment of the, of the temple. And um, at the same time, a contemporary of his, we see Nehemiah go out and rebuild the wall. And we can spend some time there um, another time because <clears throat> I'm running out of voice too. But I thought it's, it's, it's interesting that through all of this back and forth, God has a plan and man tries to figure it out and man figures it out wrong. And God tries to bring it back and he brings it back. Another, he brings it back. Um, and it's like you'd think through all of this we'd, that, that they would learn. I, I was going to say that we would learn. Because it really is no different. We find ourselves in kind of the, the same place that, you know, that God speaks into us and he tries to help us do something. And we, we do and we, 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 we listen and then we don't listen. But it was the, just 
brings us to the point where through Malachi, all of a sudden God decides you're not listening. Doesn't seem to matter what I got to say. It doesn't seem to matter how I've got to say it. I bring you to this place and I get it to where, I, I get you to where I need you to be. I get you to do the things I need you to do. But you're not listening. And so we come to the close of Malachi and we've got a period of time of, thank you, 400 years. I want you to think about that for a second. From the, from the close of the book of Malachi to the beginning of the book of Mark, which many historians say is the first, um, but to the, to the birth of Christ, we've got a period of time of 400 years that God had nothing to say to us. To me, that's, that's, that's incredible. I, I tend to be a very um, social person. I, I like to have something to, to somebody to talk to, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I've passed that tradition on to my children because I know that uh, my oldest son does not go anywhere uh, that he doesn't call somebody on the phone, so he has somebody to talk to all the way there, especially if he's in the car by himself. Which is kind of cool to have a 28 year old son that still calls you every day because he's alone in the car. Um, I'm, I'll take it. Um, I'm okay with it. I really am. But anyway. Um, but to have 400 years of silence. And as I've thought about this and how I wanted to, to kind of tie this in, because most of you are now sitting there saying, what does this have to do with Advent? That's okay. I asked myself the same question. <laughs> I just thought it was a good story, so I thought, it, no, I'm kidding. Um, when, you know, they give you the mic and say, you know, you can say whatever you want. It's like, okay, you be careful what you... Anyway, exactly. Anyway, um, looking at this, we've got 400 years of, of silence that is leading to this. But remember, going back, that from the beginning, God had intended perfection. He intended perfection. He intended for us to be at a, that all of us to be at a place that we were not made for time. We were made for eternity. And we've got to be careful because I think that what happens is that we have such finite vision in the way that things are. We, we've got nothing, to, we, we have nothing to compare eternity to because even the, old of us, the oldest of us only have the number of years of existence that we have to compare eternity to. But to be, to be able to look at that and extend it out to an, an, as an end that cannot be seen and a beginning that cannot be perceived, is that, that's beyond what our, our finite mind can grasp. But yet, it took 400 years of silence to really be able to get our attention. And um, as I was thinking about this, it was, uh, this was kind of funny. Andy uh, sent me a text, I think it was Thursday, asking me what scriptures we were going to use. And I, I told him none, but if you have a copy of the, of the book of Josephus, um, then uh, there's a legend that I want to I read um, to, the, to everybody. Um, and I, I think he thought I was kidding. 
In fact, I'm sure I th I, he thought I was kidding. Um, but I think I thought, as even as I prayed about this, that this legend from Josephus and the Book of Legends, which is taken from the Talmud, um, so perfectly exemplifies where we need to go and why and why we do Advent. So I want to I want to share this with you. Um, how many of you have ever heard um, the legend of Honey? Okay, this is. Um, You'll, hopefully you'll understand by the time I'm, I'm done reading this where we're going. It was the first century B.C. and a devastating drought threatened to destroy a generation. Um, this generation before Jesus, about 100 years before Jesus. The last of the Jewish prophets had died off nearly four centuries before. Miracles were such a distant memory that they seemed like a false memory. And God was nowhere to be heard. But there was one man, an eccentric sage who lived outside the walls of Jerusalem who dared to pray anyway. His name was Honey. And even if the people could no longer hear God, he believed that God could still hear them. When rain is plentiful, it's an afterthought. During a drought, it's the only thought. And Honey was their only hope. Famous for his ability to pray for rain, it was on this day, the day, that Honey would earn his moniker. With a six-foot staff in his hand, Honey began to turn like a math compass. His circular movement was rhythmical and methodical, 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees, 360 degrees. He never looked up as the crowd looked on. After what seemed like hours but had only been seconds, Honey stood inside the circle he'd drawn. Then he dropped to his knees and he raised his hands to heaven. With the authority of the prophet Elijah who called down fire from heaven, Honey called down rain. Lord of the universe, I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you have shown mercy to your children. The words sent a shudder through down the spine of all who were within earshot that day. It wasn't just the volume of his voice, it was the authority of his tone. Not a hint of doubt. This prayer didn't originate um, in the vocal cords. Like water from an artesian well, the words flowed from the depths of his soul. His prayer was resolute, yet humble. Confident, yet meek. Expectant, yet unassuming. Then it happened. As his prayer ascended to heaven, raindrops descended to the earth. An audible gasp swept across the thousands of congregants who were encircled Honey. Every head turned heavenward as the first drops parachuted from the sky, but Honey's head remained bowed. The people rejoiced over each drop, but Honey wasn't satisfied. With, he wasn't satisfied with the sprinkle. Still kneeling within the circle, Honey lifted his voice over the sound of the celebration. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for the rain that will fill cisterns, pits, and caverns. The sprinkle turned into such a torrential downpour that eyewitnesses said no raindrop was smaller than the size of an egg. It rained so heavily, so steadily, that the people fled to the Temple Mount to escape the flash floods. Honey stayed and prayed inside the, his protected circle. Once more, he refined his bold request. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain of thy favor, blessing, and graciousness. Then, like a well-proportioned sun shower on a hot and humid August afternoon, it began to rain calmly and peacefully. 
each drop was a tangible token of God's grace. And they didn't just soak the skin, they soaked the spirit with faith. It would be forever remembered as the day. The day thunderclaps applauded the Almighty. The day puddle jumping became an act of praise. The day the legend of the circle maker was born. It had been difficult to believe the day before the day, but the day after the day was impossible not to believe. You know, I think that this is that this so perfectly exemplifies why Advent. Because as I look at this, just as on the, the first prayer that Honey brought, you know, that we have a tendency when something begins to happen to say, that's it. This is what we were looking for, and we take it and we run. But it's not what God promised. And so it takes a, it takes a special act of commitment to say, no, God, that's not it. That's not what we asked for. That's not what we've been waiting for. There's a greater hope. There's a greater love. There's a greater joy. There's a greater peace that's out there, and we need it. And until you send that, we're going to sit here in this circle, and we're going to continue to pray because we need more than that. And just as Honey saw this massive influx of rain, and, and it sent people scattering, he was with a great deal of faith able to sit there and say, no, that's still not it, God. That's not the thing that we need. We need something that is a tangible touch, a tangible kiss on our forehead that says, yes, you have my grace. Yes, you have my love. Yes, you have all I intended for you. And there's a promise that's coming. Wait for the rain. Wait for the rain. And as we sit in that place and we begin to celebrate through this time of Advent, we can sit in this circle and we can see it begin to even out. And the rain of what we need will begin to fall down on all of us. And we'll get to that day. Yes, I know that Jesus was not born on December 25th. That really is irrelevant. The relevant thing is that he was born. The relevant thing was that there was a promise that was made in the garden that was fulfilled in a place called Bethlehem that said, I've got a rain that's coming on you. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. I know that this, for many people, is the most difficult of all seasons because we begin to look at the things that aren't functioning the way that we want them to function. We look at where we are and we say, this is not the way I thought my life would look today. We, have an, we had an image, and as we try and compare that image, it's not fitting. But I say to you, stay in the circle. There's a rain coming, and it's going to be celebrated in this Advent season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are so faithful. That you give us this time of year that we get to celebrate the perfect gift the promise that you had intended from all eternity. And we get to celebrate it with you and for you. Meet us now in this place. In your name.